0: Want versus need character arc.
1: The reason that Captain America is amazing.
0: Traditional salon system.
1: We're all just looking for unconditional love. Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world and we're using books to stay connected. I'm Melissa Hansen, always looking for the magic in the liminal spaces.
0: I didn't I didn't prepare. oh god
1: you're unbundled james
0: yeah unbusheled
1: (laughs) unbusheled like some corn
0: yeah okay and i'm james earl remaining unbusheled in milan italy
1: this month we're reading a marvelous light by freya marsk
0: uh, and just before we get started, we want to give our general spoiler alert. This is a podcast that does not believe in spoilers, so we will be spoiling all of the things, including the magical hand jobs.
1: All of the magical hand jobs. They're not all hand jobs. There's other sexual acts too. Yeah. Oh, also. This is like an NC-17 sort of book.
0: Yes, so, right. Even though we specialize in YA, for some reason our last two have been what are essentially romance novels.
1: Yeah, they're, they're sexy times. and But I will say, I think what we've experienced in both of these novels is there's like very little plot that's in the sex scenes. Like it's not a huge amount of character development. So if you decided to skip past them, it would also be okay.
0: Agreed, agreed. I think that... Like when sex scenes are done well, they're supposed to be about more than just the sex. But these in both the, the previous two novels, The Life Hypothesis and Now a Marvelous Light, it's mostly about the sex.
1: Yeah, it's it's the it's the porn without plot, which you know what? There, there's a time and a place for it. And I think I think the authors know who their audience is. I think that we just didn't know what audience we were
0: yes i i think that's true and there is some character development it's just like it's done in other places as well like edwin being Mm -hmm. uncomfortable with certain things or robin being more experienced and like more physically apt and and all like these things are established in other places and then they just are reiterated in the sex scenes
1: sorry we didn't do our summary of what happened
0: yeah we just jumped right into that. Okay.
1: I think it's your turn to do the summary. You you seem really experienced like Robin. Oh,
0: Jesus, don't do that.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I definitely identified more with Edwin through the entire thing. Yes, yes. The bookish fellow who doesn't really participate in a social world.
1: But he still had a, a nice fling with a sorcerer who is really mean. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. we all have our experiences.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I want to get into that a little bit more after we do the summary. I get a full minute. You get a full minute. Okay, cool.
1: And a one, and a two, and a one, two, three, go.
0: Okay, so we are in some vague 19th century England. It's it's very unclear uh, to me uh, if it's beginning or end of the 19th century, and... uh, a man named Robin Blythe has recently inherited a title and also, through some bureaucratic error, has ended up as a liaison between Magical England and Regular England when he didn't even know that Magical England existed. His primary point of contact with Magical England is a man named Edwin, um, who is a curmudgeony bookish fellow who does not necessarily isn't necessarily happy that Robin Blythe is there. They go on a bunch of adventures. They're definitely enemies to start. They're like constitutional opposites. Um, but as these things go, they end up getting closer and closer. Um, Robin has, has a spell put on him by some ruffian, m- r- magical ruffians, and Edwin has to um, take the curse off of him. Great! <laughs> I did a very bad job. <laughs> no, I, mean- I think it's kind of funny the way it is, and now we just have to fill in some stuff. <laughs>
1: OK, the magical ruffians definitely are the big plot of like the enemy of what drives them together is who has put this curse on Robin who barely knows what the hell is going on. And then also after he gets the curse from the magical ruffians um, who are trying to find out information from Robin, thinking he has the information from his predecessor, which he doesn't because, again, clerical error. Robin also develops the magical skill of foresight. But is it foresight? I We can discuss that later. He starts getting magical visions. And then there's also an interesting element around Edwin is his magical liaison, but the reason that he has the job is because he's only a little bit magical versus the rest of his family is like super magical and super mean to him. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I don't know where you want to start, um, if you've got any intuitive place to start. But one thing that I was struck by with this book is that setting is really important. It's 19th century, like they put it in a different century. It's got a magic system and all of that. So like usually in books that I would describe in that way, the setting is one of the primary drivers. But I felt like this novel was almost entirely character driven. You are pulled along by the force of Edwin and Robin's individual characters and their relationship to each other.
1: Yeah, I think there was something that was meant to be interesting about the setting because they did talk a bit about like city boys versus country folk Mm -hmm. and ley lines and how there aren't a lot of magical jobs because industry is better yeah (laughs) like you can just own a railroad instead of making like things into gold which I think there was supposed to be like an interesting note there about like the industrial revolution but it didn't seem super important even when they were just like oh yeah Oscar Wilde everyone like like he got convicted Uh, for being for for sexy times and they're just like banging all over the place
0: (laughs) you've actually correctly identified why I had such a hard time placing this in the 19th century because there was this railroad thing that seemed new and exciting which is an early 19th century thing. But then there was Oscar Wilde, which is a very late 19th century thing. And there was also the placing it in time with the Monet painting. So it's, I guess, a late 19th century, which is interesting because I feel like that's also a time period when titles and nobility is declining in value and mercantile rich Or And so, like, very much a, a theme in this novel is... That there are hierarchies that are official and that exist, so like titles and whatever, um, but they're kind of meaningless. Like Robin Blythe has a title, but he doesn't really have any money, and he doesn't really have any skills, and that's like part of what makes him self-conscious about his role in the world. And then there are these hierarchies that are not official but clearly exist, like people who have more magic slash more power than other people. There's the gay straight thing with prestige male-female thing where like these are hierarchies that aren't like in law they don't come with titles necessarily however they exist and they impact the way that the characters exist in the world
1: yeah i think something's interesting about like that 19th century late 19th century space is what ends up happening is the magical ruffians one of them is Someone who, because he doesn't have a lot of magic, lost the woman he wanted to marry Mm -hmm. because her family wanted her to marry someone with a lot of magic. And so he is on this quest to figure out how can he basically steal the magic from other (laughs) magical people in order to like have power. And there's also this re- recurring theme, very very slight about like the suffragette movement and Robin's sister being more of like a suffragette in a like Mary Poppins sort of way, but still it's there. It's a yearning of we are recognizing that we are in a time where potentially the castes that we thought were so strict mm-hmm. are changing. And what could that look like? How could we break these down?
0: Yes, and that's reflected in the magic system, which is something I, I don't think I've ever seen in a fantasy book before. Is this kind of magic system where there are different versions of the magic that are like culturally constructed? Like Edwin and his family are very much invested in British magic as like a colonial institution that are like associated with very traditional colonizer masculine characteristics and then you have these like Edwin studies other kinds of magic like eastern magics and that the woman who he ultimately will inherit an estate from had this like feminine I think the only way to really describe it are like queer magic systems that undermine the values of the English patriarchal values of the way magic works and that there are like other forms of this magic that you can tap into that are culturally constructed
1: yeah and like the beginning of the novel Edwin is bemoaning the fact he's like no one's done any new magic in like years we just do the same magic over and over again when there's there going to be a new spell yeah
0: just the magic of the empire. And it's it's getting boring.
1: Yeah. And also just like that you can find the new magic through these elements of diversity and distance. Yes. Whether it's in like language or identity. And you need that in order to evolve the system.
0: Yeah. And then there's Flora Sutton and her estate and how she basically was doing her own type of magic there. And, like, investigating new forms of magic on her own outside of the system and outside of, like, institutions and publications and whatever. By mining those people who work on the outsides, that's where the interesting stuff was happening. That might actually link in with the Monet painting selling for a bit. Like, Monet is attempting to use different forms of representation and impressions of the world, working outside of the traditional salon system that imbued French art with power for so long.
1: Related to what we're just talking about, these inherited caste systems, there was a lot in the book also just around, like, the inheritance of magic, as well as, like, property and things like that. The central, like, mystery of the novel that we find the magical ruffians are pursuing is how all of these people who are magical got magic was contract, and we'll talk more about contracts later, I'm sure, because that's a huge part about contracts and consent, with the phase. And then those three people who got the magic from the contract with the phase inherited magic, and then were able to give it on. So that's the quote, that's the namesake of the novel, which is, we are man's marvelous light. We hold the gifts of the dawn from those now past and gone and carry them into the night. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of things around how do you inherit things? Do you inherit magic or not inherit magic? As well as when Edwin ends up inheriting Flora's property by doing a blood oath with it. Yeah. And I think that was also a really interesting thing to me because usually when I see magic in novels like this, when it comes to like, creating a covenant with the land especially with blood it usually means that you sacrifice to the land yeah and it's like ritual sacrifice that you need to like sacrifice a child like i'm thinking of like the perilous guard which was one of my favorite novels as a kid it was like just a bunch of fairy folk stealing children and sacrificing them to keep the land prosperous versus in this world it's about working with the land in order to keep it pure from death
0: yeah yeah right it was more of a collaboration and than- than a necessary sacrifice or like giving a part of yourself in whatever kind of way like this is more like he's dedicating himself to it but he's not actually giving anything up or sacrificing anything yeah yeah just a commitment yeah
1: but i also think when it comes to inheritance so there's like what do you inherit from your parents and i think for edwin the question is magic And for all of the magical people, it's like, how much magic do you inherit? And where does it put you in the hierarchy? Mm -hmm. Both of, like, are you a rich person that's rich with probably, like, status and magic? Or are you poor in both of those things? And that determines who you can marry and your own status and your children's status. Or if you look at Robin, again, what you were saying, like, someone of high status but very poor. And all his parents care about are appearances. Mm -hmm. And it's about philanthropy or charity for their favorite thing in the world which is praise yeah because they want praise and to talk sweetly in front of other people but then destroy them behind their backs and robin not wanting to inherit that from his parents
0: yeah they both want to distance themselves from their parents in both of their cases edwin and robin there was a very clear want versus need character arc that is like called out very on the nose in the end of the book where Edwin is offered everything that he ever wants, like the ability to do magic at this really high level. and Robin is given everything that he ever wants, this like ability to join an elite group of people and like have all sorts of status. And both of them reject this thing that they both would have jumped at at the very beginning of the novel. Because they found what they actually needed and not like a proxy for what they wanted. But actually giving this language has proved more difficult for me. Like even though it's called out explicitly by the author and said directly that this is the character arc that they were on. I've been having some trouble like actually giving it language. Like what does Edwin want versus what he needs And what does Robin want versus what he needs? And what I've come up with so far is that Robin wants to be taken seriously as, like, a protector and a patriarch and, like, a responsible man to his family. And that's, like, what he wants and he pursues that. But then when he's given the ability to, like, get that in a certain way, he, I don't know, this is, like, what I'm having trouble with. Because he gets it at the end. So like the thing he wants is what he gets. So it's like a conflation of want and need.
1: I would say for me, Robin's arc of his need is integrity. Mm. That was the thing that came across when he made the promise with his sister early in the novel where it's like, we'll never lie to each other because we see how our parents talk shit behind people's backs. He's not saying yes or no to Cambridge. (laughs) He's just like being like, we'll talk about it later. He's like, what does that mean? He's like, we'll talk about that later. You know, I will never lie to you. And so much of, especially when we get the classic rom-com betrayal moment where Robin's like, how dare you, Edwin, you were just going to erase my memory and erase everything we were to each other just because I'm not magical. Like, I feel that's also like an integrity moment, which is like, I, I worship truth. I want truth. And I want that level of honesty in my interactions. Mm-hmm. And so uh, it's like an unbusheling of everything in his life in order to get to that pureness of integrity, which is what he wants. to so the smaller property, not the farce of the house that he has with all the servants.
0: Right. Yeah, that's, that's certainly how it ends is like he wants this thing and then he finds it in a place that he didn't necessarily expect because like that's, that's the need is this like more provincial or like close community of people that have integrity that are honest with each other and whatever.
1: That group might just be like three people, but you know,
0: right. So even though at the beginning, he kind of like wants to live up to the expectation of his house and his title. That's not actually what he wants. That's like a proxy for having integrity and being respected by the people in his life for being an integral person. And then Edwin and the reason why I think I identify with Edwin more than, than Robin <laughs> is that there's this like part of Edwin that is like, no, I can only be good if I'm alone. Like I can only be the like scholarly force that can provide value to the world. Like he wants to be useful and like the way that he can be useful is just like studying harder than other people. And that almost requires him to be alone. And it's like that's what he pursues. So he's he pushes everybody away. He's just like curmudgeoning. And that's what he wants. But in the end, that's not what he actually needs. He actually needs to be a part of the social world because the thing that jumpstarts him into finding where his power can lay is actually having somebody that he cares about enough to try. Like beforehand, it was just like a theoretical thing. Learn enough, provide value as being somebody who knows things, which requires him to be alone, but like appropriate for the themes of the book once he starts caring enough about Robin he cares enough to like try like there's a scene pretty early on when Robin is like I would prefer you do the magic because I uh, like your attention to detail and so he goes okay I guess I could try like I'm, I'm certainly not ready I could still study some more but I'll, I'll try and like that trying is a thing that provokes him to remove the curse to like do the blood oath with the house and like all of a sudden he's a powerful magician by the end
1: this is going to sound really weird but I was connecting Edwin's arc to Captain America <laughs> <laughs> Wait for it. Wait for it. I've got this. Okay, okay.
0: I was connecting it to Galadriel, but you go on with the Captain America.
1: (laughs) Okay, then we'll go to Galadriel. The reason that Captain America is amazing, or Steve Rogers, I'll say Steve Rogers is amazing, is early in in the movie, you're seeing like he's a very slight man. He's not very strong. And because he is not powerful in a traditional sense, that is what has been able to give him the integrity that he needs to become a superhero later. He learns like, what it takes to like look out for the little one because he's been the little one. He like knows why it's important to protect other people because he's had that other experience. Mm-hmm. He's shown to be more intelligent than his fellow soldiers um, through a bunch of the trials and the training scenarios because he has to rely on his smarts versus his brawn that he doesn't have. And so by the time he gets the brawn, he's had like two decades of training where he's learned integrity and character that he's able to now use that power in an ethical way. Because he has that training that people who are already were born powerful have tossed aside and they are cutting corners. And so they're more easily corrupted. And Edwin is very similar. Where because he doesn't have a lot of power, the thing they always say is precision. Is he's learned the precision of the movements um, while other people are like being lazy and just like doing whatever. And they're like, we'll figure it out. I'll just throw enough power at it and I'll figure it out. When Edwin is able to finally like get the power, he has those decades of precision that are, like, holding him in a little more of a protective area that hopefully, like, absolute power doesn't corrupt absolutely.
0: Yeah, that's that's interesting. It's, like, the, the person who is a late bloomer physically and has needed to keep up in, like, varsity sports with limited physical skills and then all of a sudden gets a growth spurt and is, like, 6'2", and then they've got all this, like, little man energy mm-hmm. and precision and then have a physical frame to do that. Yeah. When you first started describing this, I was hearing Prince Hal from Shakespeare mm. growing up with the Falstaffian Gang of Thieves, and then he gets all the power when he's king and can therefore relate to other people. But it's, it's slightly different there because he, he was playing the like, roughy and lazy kid, <laughs> not, not learning precision.
1: <laughs> What's a Galadriel comparison?
0: Yeah. So the Galadriel comparison is in A Deadly Education, for much of that book, Galadriel thinks that she has to provide value in order to be loved Mm. or like appreciated or to like get a friend. The only way that anybody's going to pick her to be on their team to get out of the scalamance is if she can prove to them that she has value. And I feel like Edwin has that kind of like little man complex where he's like, nobody's going to need me around unless I can do something that they can't do. And I need to prove to them that I have this thing. And Robin just saying like, whoever taught you to not like the things that you like or whatever, I wish I could punch him in the nose or whatever Robin's take is. Mm-hmm. It's just like Robin didn't even know that there was magic beforehand. So like, I don't know. Robin is able to like him without Edwin needing to prove value to him. Mm-hmm. And learning that lesson is the same that Galadriel learned in yeah. the Deadly Education book.
1: We're all just looking for unconditional love.
0: Well, yeah, or like a fear that unconditional love is not possible and then realize that it is. And there are other comparisons with A Deadly Education as well, like essentially this last contract business is about forming an enclave where all the magic is pooled together and everybody can draw from it indiscriminately and the sort of hierarchies of power within a magical world are flattened, which was really confusing to me because it doesn't make sense to me why a character like Walt would want this last contract to be fulfilled. Like He has power because he's a more powerful magician than other people, so why he would be okay with sharing it. I feel like his opinion should be more similar to the character who at dinner was like, you have the power you have, and that's it.
1: This is another problem where I did not realize that this is a one of two book series. Because I was like, oh, by the end, we're going to find out like why Walt wants it. And then we don't. He's just like, there's something coming. Do you think the whole assembly doesn't know that we're doing this? Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's a reason that we don't know yet because we didn't read the second book. Yeah. But I also think there's an element of dictatorship fascism in like Walt's thing is like, yes, if we put all the power together, you can start it with this idea of like communism and then take all the power for yourself mm. <laughs> at the end as the part of control, like as I'm protecting everyone from this thing that's coming because I'm the most powerful.
0: Right, the party. The party yeah. will take all the resources. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think we don't have enough details about what the contract is and how it works and if that's possible. I also didn't know that it was a one of two until the end when it was like very clearly setting up So I just stuff. feel
1: tricked every time. And then I went on Goodreads and it said one of two and I was like, yeah. wait, we saw this before you picked this book. yeah. How did we miss it? I don't know. (laughs) To the authors, if anyone listens to our podcast, just write one book. It's okay to end it after one book. I give you permission. One thing we haven't talked about is contracts and consent.
0: Uh, Yeah, obviously that's a big part of this novel. So you want to take the lead on that?
1: Sure. I think one clear justification of the sex scenes for me was this ongoing conversation about contracts and consent. Mm -hmm. Especially like when you think about magic in this magical world, they're all treated as like contracts especially when we think about like the last contract between the phase and the magical people. It's all about I make a contract with another human being for the spell. I make a contract with the land. And in that we are achieving consent from each other, which is shown also in all of the sex scenes of there is repeatedly asking of consent and encouragement of not giving blanket consent.
0: Yeah, right. That That's said explicitly a couple times of like, don't give blanket consent. They do anyway. In, the, in the They circuit. still do. And yeah. then they like... But then they get mad at each other for doing it.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but like, especially at the end when they sort of trick Walt, it comes back to precision of language, the legalistic language of the contract and making sure you know what you're getting yourself into.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. The precision of consent and making sure that you are being specific and that you're listening to each other with what is being given and what is being offered and what is being taken okay so maybe the sex scenes do have redemptive thematic value
1: no they have thematic value it's just
0: whether or not that was done in other places better yeah. and whether or not the sex scenes were needed to establish those
1: I think there was supposed to be character development and when Edwin finally like is able to be like yes you can give me a blowjob yeah
0: yeah, that was a big moment.
1: Like I think that was his <laughs> I think that was his character growth. That's what yeah. he was really that was his actually his need. Yeah.
0: I also appreciate how every time they need to debrief a situation, they first need to debrief each other. <laughs> Another theme that I think they hit pretty hard in this book was the ways that we don't value or we don't understand the value that other people have. And so there's a constant underestimating of, in particular, traditionally disenfranchised communities, queer communities and female communities are the two that are like very obvious. Like Mrs. Morrissey and her sister are undervalued and underappreciated and underestimated and that obviously links with what I was talking about earlier with the different kinds of magic and how some are discursively constructed as more valuable than other types of power but that's like just over and over in this book people are underestimated their magical ability or their just ability as humans is taken for granted or underestimated and then all of a sudden they prove to be more competent more you know have greater ability than everybody else
1: or even if they show more ability it's like well it was wasted on them Mm -hmm. Um, when i think about edwin's ex-boyfriend's twin sister this is why i'm like is it foresight because robin keeps on seeing this dude and a blonde woman and i'm like is this not this guy's twin sister
0: (laughs) yeah i i actually was assuming it was for a good part
1: yeah but they were like implying that she's dead there's something happening in the second book is all i'm saying Yeah. But they were like, oh, it's wasted on, like, she's the most powerful magician we've seen in eons, but it was wasted on her because, you know, women just can't, they can't can't learn how to control it like men can. It's like women can't be president because they have PMS.
0: But then Kitty and Miss Morrissey are the most competent people in the book. Yes. And Flora. Yes. So... Let us move on to our IB paper Two question segment where we take what is a torturous IB task for high school seniors around the globe and we do it recreationally and have fun with it. This month's question is literature often deals with the themes of coincidence chance or accident to what extent and in what ways has a work that you've studied deal with these ideas.
1: Well the whole book starts because of an accident. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's like, example, case study number one is bureaucratic mistake. Classic. Robin gets put as a magical liaison and things precipitate from there. If that's the accident, if the, like this whole book is based on a bureaucratic mistake, is there anything interesting there? Like, does that interact with the themes at all? That it's a bureaucratic mistake that leads to his awakening? <laughs> 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 his, his, fore, his foresight awakening, but also... The blossoming of this love and everything else. There is the idea that Robin thinks that he's going to have some sort of control over the value that he gives to the world. Like, he's sort of obsessed with things at the very beginning of him, like, knowing what he's supposed to do. Like, he wants to be somebody who's going to get an assignment and then do a good job at that thing. And so the idea that he's knocked off, like, the thing that you planned isn't actually the thing that's going to happen. Like, this can't be planned for... And that he needs that that like uncertainty to knock him into purpose, Mm -hmm. him pursuing purpose on his own and just like, I'm going to follow rules is not going to be the way that he actually achieves purpose. It has to be by accident. And like that happening within bureaucracy, which is so rule based and like policy based is maybe significant.
1: When I'm thinking of chance in the novel, I just keep on thinking of inheritance, whether or not you inherit magic or not feels completely random when they were talking about, like, who do you choose to marry? It's like, you you don't want to take a bet on a family that has proven squibs, for lack of a better term, <laughs> like, in their lineage. Yeah. But you don't actually know. How do you maximize your power, knowing that chance can, like, take you down?
0: Yeah. That obviously has thematic resonance, that inheritance bit. The other moment of chance is when... Edwin does the blood oath and it just like happens to be at the same moment that Flora is-
1: Oh yeah, die.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's straight coincidence. And also that's exactly what I was talking about earlier with Edwin needing to care about something enough to try. And so like that's a last ditch effort that he probably wouldn't have had the confidence to do if it was just for himself. He was participating in protecting Robin that he was like, OK, well, there is like one thing I could try. And he just like goes for it when he wouldn't have had the confidence to do that earlier. And the fact that he goes for it coincides and is coincidental with Flora dying. And then that ends up being the way that he's able to like actually understand and participate in the, the type of power that he mm-hmm. does have.
1: That's bringing back to what you're talking about with Edwin's character Arc. The moment that struck me was when he and Robin were having their fight about the leafment. Robin finally just is like, you know, I don't care about all this shit. do you want me to stay? Yeah and Edwin's like
0: <laughs> and
1: then says nothing.
0: <laughs> yeah
1: it's almost like being comfortable with his own want mm-hmm. is what he needs and like it's okay to have a need that is rooted in another person and to say it out loud. Because that is, like, where the real power comes from. Yes. He gets the power from protecting Robin. Yes. And wanting to protect him.
0: Right. That's what, like, gives him the encouragement to try. I think this is exploring the, like, artistic potential of a coincidence, too. It, it, like, needs to be in that moment. The moment when Robin is in the most danger that he needs to do it. Or else he probably would have missed his chance at inheriting that land and everything going the way that it goes. So it's the artistic potential of coincidence, chance through the bureaucracy in Robin, Flora's death at the same time as a blood oath. The inheritance obviously falls in with all those things, and that's chance. Okay.
1: Crushed it. What is what is the top score in IB? 10? 5? 12? Still 7. It's still 7. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, what are we reading next?
0: So we could stay with the 19th century theme and do the debating Darcy, although I don't think that takes place in the 19th century. But it takes place at a high school debate. I kind of want to hear you talk about debate team stuff. I feel like that plays to some of our strengths.
1: It does play to our strengths.
0: Jane Austen debating about romance in classics. is like, that's what we do. Yeah. And you with the debate team, and I did my undergrad thesis on Jane Austen. I didn't want to.
1: (laughs) Let's do that one. I also want to. I was not on debate team. I was on speech team. This is like when you thought I was on water polo.
0: I know, but like, you know, these. <laughs> I know I knew that you weren't on debate team, but you were on
1: competitive speaking team. Yes,
0: a competitive speaking team, constitution team. Yeah. And those things for me are coded proximal to each other.
1: Yes. Also, we can do comparisons if you can watch Fire Island before then.
0: Ooh, that's a Hulu thing, Yeah, but I really did like Alison Bechdel's tweet about how it passes the Bechdel test, not in any traditional way.
1: (laughs) There's only one woman in
0: it. Only one female (laughs) named character.
1: (laughs) Oh, there's too many movies about gay Asian men. Yeah. Anyways, I actually think it's like one of the best modern adaptations of Pride and Prejudice, if not the best one.
0: That's a bold take. I mean Bridget Jones are so many
1: I know, and I love Bridget Jones. I think this might be one of my favorite Wickham takedowns of all time.
0: <laughs> okay, I am committed to both watching Fire Island and reading Debating Darcy by maybe the next time we see each other and maybe record in person.
1: We can get some San Francisco treats. It's not riceroni. We'll get some like sourdough bread. Chili Achilles. Chili Achilles. And we can talk about debating Darcy. Let's do it. Literary Connections is hosted by me, Melissa Hansen, and James Earl, and we're produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading Debating Darcy by Sayantani Dasgupta.
0: All right. See you then, Melissa.
1: See you then. Well, Neha has already read I Must Betray You, which means I already have it on my Kindle, so I'm encouraged to read that one because I don't need to buy it.
0: Did Did she like it?
1: She gave it five stars for well-researched, easy-to-read information about the horrors of the communist regime in Romania. Three stars for character building and pacing and plot.
0: <laughs> oh, God. Okay. Okay. <laughs>